Hello and welcome to the Blue Collar Yields podcast. I am your host, Tom Migliaccio. At Blue Collar Yields, we will talk about real estate, entrepreneurialism, and many other topics. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts. And while there, don't forget to rate this show and subscribe. Leticia Palero is an analyst for Capri, an apartment operator that owns and manages over 16,000 apartment units in 20 states. Leticia serves on Capri's acquisition team and assists the firm in their efforts to acquire new multifamily communities. This episode will be helpful for college students, recent grad, and professionals who are looking to transition into a career in commercial real estate. It will also provide a behind-the-scenes look at how large apartment operators pursue new acquisitions. Leticia, thanks for being here. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So you serve as the acquisition analyst for a national apartment operator. Could you please tell us more about your role on the acquisition team? I am responsible for screening opportunities, potential acquisitions. I basically do detailed financial analysis using Excel in order to produce performance and cash flow models. What I'm also responsible for is creating the initial CapEx budget, and then I revise it once I take a tour of the property. I also do tours, either locally or whatever the apartment is located at. We don't take a look at apartments here in New Jersey or Pennsylvania just because of how expensive they are. So most of our properties are in the Southeast, the Midwest, Mid-Atlantic, and some in the West Coast that we manage. That's what I do. I do the property tours. Also have done some dispositions. Working in the disposition process, I usually prepare waterfall, the models. I assist with compiling all the documents that are needed to put the property up for sale. And I'm also in a lot of communication with the brokers to just get information about the property, get their feedback from the property. Can you explain to us what a waterfall structure is? So the waterfall gives you an idea of what the investor is going to get at the end of the day. Once the property goes through its period, we either held it for five, seven, or 10 years, depending on the fund of the investor. So the waterfall shows the return on investment, the cash yield, cash on cash, year one, year two, and so forth, and how much you're going to get in proceeds at the end of the day. So. You touched on this and you said you're responsible for the initial screening of the investment properties. What does your screening process look like and what are the key metrics, if any, that you use? The first thing that I do once I see a potential property is I Google it and check the location, read the reviews, see if it's worth doing more research. After I do that, I go on CoStar, which is one of the databases with most of the multifamily properties information. Once I get there, I get the rent and for that particular property as well as the comps and sometimes the submarket demographics. Other key metrics that I use are the school rating, home values, crime rate, the amount of existing and new supply coming online. Also, one of the most important things that I look at is the sales comps. 
many times I find it hard to get a good sales comp because the property that I'm looking at is highly priced. So it's really hard to just get something that was recently sold for that price or around that price. Is it highly priced just because of the volume, meaning the number of units, or are you guys going after more Class A type properties? We look at Class B property, Class C, and the Class C, we're trying to get them into Class B properties. They're highly priced because of the way uh, brokers underwrite this. So what they do is they include the renovation premiums in their NOI, which Capri doesn't do. We take it out. We don't use it to value it, to value the property at the beginning. We use it for year one, year two. But for valuation purposes, we do not use the renovation premium. And that's why what they're looking for is not something that we tend to uh, underwrite to. For rent comps, how are you keeping it apples to apples? Is there a certain distance that you're looking in? And if you're looking at a, let's say, 500 unit acquisition, how do you find something and make sure it's apples to apples? We looked at the properties, let's say it's a Class C, and we're trying to get to a Class B. So I look at both rent comps, the Class C and Class B properties, see what the Class B is offering and what we can offer later on. Then also, what is the delta? We look at the distance. Uh, How far is it? Is it a mile? Is it two miles? We don't go more than three miles. We stay within three-mile radius. Also, the square footage of the unit and how many units it has, if it has one bedroom, two bedrooms. So those are like the key components that I use for rent comps and find the best rent comp. I also look at the vintage when I do the rent comp. Can you explain to us what the vintage is? How old the property is. So if it's 30 years old, if it's 20 years old. Mostly we look at um, 1980s and above. We don't do 70s properties just because of how they are, and it's just going to be hard to sell in the future. You briefly touched on this. Can you walk us through what the underwriting process actually looks like? Once we decide to further pursue the property, I start with downloading the package that the broker gives. Basically, we get all the property financials from the most recent trailing 12 to rent rolls and historical financials. Sometimes they don't provide the historical financials at the beginning. They wait and they just give it to you as you go on. And most times I call the broker and just request them. That way I have at least three years of historical financials to see how the property has been operating. Once I have that, I plug those numbers into the model. As for the rent roll, I use Red IQ, which is a system that helps us analyze the rent roll in minutes. If they can't do it, we can send it to them and they'll give us the rent roll the next day, all the analyzed and everything. So it really helps us because it saves us time from going through each and every rent and how much they're charging and doing all of that. Once I have the financials and the rent roll and the model, I start doing the operating assumptions and see where can I cut expenses, how can I increase the rent, how can I increase other income, what are some of the 
other income items that I can increase, such as rubs or cable income or other fees that they're currently not charging. I also do research on the real estate taxes. They're different states or different counties reassess differently. So it is very important to to look at the real estate taxes just because that's the big play in how everything's going to shake out. Some counties, they reassess a 90% of the sales price. Others, they do 60%. So it's a big difference. And it can either help us with the deal or just kill it. After I do all of that, I move into the CapEx budget and see what the property needs. If it has a lot of deferred maintenance, I get on the phone with the broker and get his story of the property. And then if we have time, we go and take a look at it. We shop it. If there are no tours scheduled, then we just shop the property. We send either a regional or a property manager in that location or I myself go and do the tour. Do you guys do secret shopping as well? We do. That only happens if we're half interested. If we're not really interested, but it, it seems like something that might work, then we send someone. That way we don't waste any time or I don't waste any time going over there and getting into a plane and flying out there. So yeah, we do secret shopping, but we don't like to do that. We We'll rather get the tours that way we can talk to the property manager and see how the property is operating. We get more information through the property tour instead of just secretly shopping. So how do big-time apartment investors typically source their deals? Usually we get email blasts. That is if it's marketed like widely. But if it's off-market, we get phone calls from the brokers. Or from the owners. And they'll just say, hey, I'm looking to unload this property. Do you guys have any interest? Is that how that works, the off-market deals? Yes. So the brokers, they contact probably five to eight groups the most. And they see who's actually a real player. If it's the owner, they usually give us a call and tells us, you know, I'm offering this property. This is what I'm looking for. Let me know if you're interested, and then we'll take a look at it. So now can you explain to us the flip side of it, how the offering process goes for a widely marketed property? For that, we first get the email blast. Then we underwrite the deal. If it works, then we submit a letter of intent with the price that we think is right. It's usually a little lower than the whisper. That way we have some room to move up if we make it to the best and final round. If we end up in the best and final round, then we get interviewed by the owner and sometimes the broker to see if we meet their criteria. So once we get the deal, if we do get it, then we sign the purchase sale agreement and then we start the due diligence period, which is typically 30 days and then 60 days to close. But that depends on the deal. So two follow-up questions. Can you explain what the whisper is and what the best and final is? The whisper price is what the broker or owner are targeting to get in terms of pricing. It's not their final price. That's what they want. And before, when I first started two years ago, 
used to get the whisper price and they will tell me it's 30 million or whatever it is. Now brokers, I've seen this very often, like in the last six months, they give you a range. They give you from like 30 to 35 million. So it's harder to actually get to the right pricing because you might be at 28 million and that's like 2 million off the whisper. But if you look at the highest whisper price, which is 35 or $7 million off. So if the broker gives you a range, it's harder to tell what they're looking for. Everyone kind of seems to have their own underwriting techniques, which shakes out to different cap rates. So if, if you're putting your own cap on it, then you could be a couple million off of someone else's that, and you're looking at the same numbers and trying to make a competing offer. That can be somewhat challenging for you. Yeah. And when I get on the phone with brokers, I often ask them, you know, what's your whisper price? They tell me their whisper price. And then I ask them, so what's the cap rate? And they'll tell me a 6% cap rate. So then I go back and plug that in. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. It's, it's different how we underwrite the deals than what they do. For like the value add, they include their premiums in there. So that's why they get the 6% cap rate. We don't do that. So we get a lower cap rate. On a widely marketed property, how many offers are being made on those? About 10 to 15, I will say. How many make it to the best and final? Usually five groups. And it depends if it's like 15, let's say, then five to eight, but usually five. So the broker provides a lot of the information required to make the investment decision. What steps do you take to make sure you're getting the best information possible? I do some market research, location, home values. I read about the property. I read the reviews on Google. I go and take a tour or secretly shop it. Then if we have to make a really quick decision, then we send the property manager, as I mentioned before, the a regional that's close to, to where the property is located. Because oftentimes the broker will not disclose all the information, so we have to get it ourselves. So you mentioned value add. Is there any type of investment opportunities that your team pursues? We do value add, light tech, affordable, or workforce housing, core and core plus. But my main focus has been on light tech deals, workforce housing, and value add. The other team that I work along with has done a little bit more of the core, core plus, and the value add. What are some common value add strategies for market rate transactions? In the renovations, so upgrading the kitchen, the bathroom, living areas, adding appliances, depending on the market. You either want to add black appliances or stainless steel. You either want to do a full renovation or just partial. You also want to do common area upgrades if they're dated or if they're not curb appeal, then you want to do exterior improvements. If it's on the affordable side, then you might want to do green upgrades, which is switching to LED lighting or doing a water savings program. Do you come across any deals that have the poly piping on it? Not recently, but about a year ago, I did find some that were that had poly on them. And we still take a look at them. 
depending on how old it is and how much they've done. Because sometimes there are properties who have replaced the poly, but only on certain parts. If we really like the property and the location, we budget for the replacement of the poly. You mentioned your team also pursues LIHTC transaction. Can you please explain to us what LIHTC deals are and why investors might find them attractive? LIHTC is the short term for low-income housing tax credit, which is designed to encourage the development or rehab of affordable rental housing. Investors like the LIHTC deals because of the tax credits. They use on the tax credits to upset their income tax liabilities. And also, they get some cash flow out of it. So it's a win-win for them. So is there a different value-add strategy for the LIHTC deals? Yeah. We budget for a little upgrade or any replacements or repairs that the units need. Sometimes the property is not performing well and they can't raise any rents because the units are too old, they're not taken care of. So we budget about 1000 to $2,000 per unit to make them a little bit better and that way increase a little bit of the rents if, and, but not exceeding the max allowable rents. And for that, we also... Some of the value-add strategies that we use on the affordable side are the green upgrades, such as the LED lighting and the water savings program. What is the most exciting deal that you've worked on so far? I think this was a 236-unit mix and mixed income portfolio that was located in St. Paul. The location was perfect since it was within walking distance to downtown and the light rail station. Also, there was plenty of shopping and dining options. What made it interesting was the different components to it. Since it was mixed income, it had the affordable units that were restricted at 40 and 60% AMI. Then there was a partial HAP contract in place for some of the units. Then it also had TIF units and market rate units and some commercial spaces. So the TIF units were restricted at 150% AMI, which made them basically market rate units. We plan on making in-unit renovations and upgrading the common areas. So we decided to submit an LOI. However, we got outbid, so we didn't get the deal, unfortunately. After working so many hours and so many days on this one, we didn't get the deal. But yeah, that was like the most interesting and exciting deal that I've done so far. That definitely happens the under, right? You do a lot of work, due diligence, and unfortunately, sometimes someone else just bids more than you. Can you tell us what AMI is? The average medium income. What kind of cap rates are you seeing on the multifamily market right now? Anywhere from four to a six, but mostly five. It depends on the area also. I remember looking at a deal in Coral Springs with the four and a quarter cap rate on in-place numbers. And then I also took a look at another one in Florida. It was an affordable deal that was coming out of its compliance period that was going to turn into market rate. That was two and a half cap rate. So it's, it's been crazy. Was that marketed at two and a half or was that your underwriting? That was my underwriting because, of course, the broker included 
all their premiums after going market rate. What was the disparity between you and the broker? What the broker did, he was underwriting it as if it was a market rate property, but it was still in its affordable period. So you couldn't really underwrite to a market rate deal because it wasn't. And I wouldn't, even though it was going to turn into market rate. I just wouldn't do that. So I know that acquisition roles are difficult to obtain. Can you tell us how you were able to break into the commercial real estate industry as an acquisition analyst? It is really difficult to get into anything that has to do with commercial real estate, I think. But I think the most important is to get into it is just network. Network while you're in school or if you're already in the professional field. Networking is a big thing. It helps you with, obviously, job opportunities. People who know you will get you the job, probably, or you will be more likely to get hired if they recommend you. So it is important just to network and promote yourself and stay active in like professional social media sites such as LinkedIn. So you have to network to get in. Then once you're in, what's the most important skill that is needed to survive as an analyst? Communication. Time management, decision-making, creativity, and problem-solving. I think those are the skills that you need to do good as an analyst. The analyst role is important in the valuation process and comes with a lot of responsibility. Did you find it stressful in the beginning, and how did you handle the stress? It was very stressful. I started off with a little knowledge in the multifamily industry. They hired me right after college. It was pretty hard at the beginning. I spent so many hours here, and even after work, I will go home and still do some work just to learn faster and do better, perform better every day. One of the things that I felt like it was my fault if we didn't get a property, if we didn't make it to the best and final for a certain property, and if we submitted a letter of intent and we didn't make it to the final round, I felt like that stressed me out just because maybe I missed something on the underwriting or I did something wrong that didn't get to the price that they were looking for. So that kind of stressed me out. And after that, I learned that it's something that you can't control. Properties are going to get outbid. So it's just how it is in this industry. What was the most challenging part of picking up this job? I think working with capital expenditure budgets, that was like the most difficult thing to do in this job. They used to give me a lot of headaches. It's hard to tell what the property actually needed just by looking at the pictures or getting information from the broker. Even when you talk to the brokers, they, they oftentimes don't tell you everything. I think that was the hardest part. So what's one piece of advice you'd have for a new analyst? Stay motivated and be ready to sacrifice a lot of your personal time. Keep learning, reading, keep doing research. So typically commercial real estate has been a male-dominated career path over the years. What advice do you have for women that are trying to pursue a career in commercial real estate? I will tell them to not give up. There will be a lot of reaction, but it shouldn't discourage women to keep going. Oftentimes, it was hard to just get a phone call back. But uh, I told myself, keep making those calls. Keep calling them and don't give up. Because if you do, then you're not going to make it. 
What keeps you motivated to keep going and not give up? My family. I'm the only child, so they expect a lot from me. And that's why I try to do better every day. So where does Leticia see herself in the next five and ten years? I think that in five years I will be back in school to get my MBA. And after that, I hope to keep working in the multifamily industry. Final question. What was your first job and a lesson that you learned that prepared you for your current role? My very first job was answering phones at a pizzeria and taking orders. And that was at the age of 16. The first lesson that I think helped me with my current role was that your boss or your supervisor is always watching. It's always testing you. And not in a bad way, but to make you better each day and be a better employee for the company. And be a better person. Grow professionally. Leticia, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it today. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If there are more topics you would like to hear about, you can email us at info at bluecollaryields.com. For more episodes, you can search Blue Collar Yields on Apple Podcasts.